Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. The question is a straightforward one. Who are you? Who are you? It's a question of identity, of belonging, of purpose. Who are you? It's a question that appears simple enough to answer. And yet, how this question is answered impacts not only our self-image, not only our personal health. The answer to this question affects how we interact, how we're impacted by each other. The answer to this question, who are you, impacts our perceptions and vision of what's possible. The answer to this question influences the choices that we make. And the choices we make bear consequences in the world around us. Strip everything else away, and the answer to this question, who are you, becomes the reason we do the things we do. The answer to this question is in no small part why the way the world, the world is the way that it is. I mean, if you think about it, all of our cultural discussions and debates, all of our increasing polarization around matters of politics, gender, nationality, ancestry, ethnicity, privilege, and so forth, are fundamentally about our sense of identity, who we think we are. So then, who are you? Who are you? We each have our answer to that question, don't we? We each have our answer to that question. And for some of us, more than we may realize or want to admit, for some of us, the answer to this question, who are you, has been and continues to be defined by the thoughts and opinions of others. But today's message is about God's answer to this question. Though admittedly, At first glance, as we go back out into the wilderness with John the Baptist and Jesus arrives on the scene, it's not going to appear that what follows has anything to do with us, with who we are, as much as it does with him, with who Jesus is. And yet, as we'll discover, what Jesus is about to experience and what comes immediately after has everything to do everything to do with understanding and appreciating our true identity. It will be the definitive answer to the question, who are you? With that in mind, hopefully you have the scripture open. It'll also be on the screen. Let's read from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting in verse 15. It reads, The people were waiting expectantly and wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the tetriarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added them, this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Now, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you keep those Bibles open, we didn't read the genealogy that follows after that line, but we are certainly going to be talking about it today as well. Well, you've got the scene that's set before us, the crowds, the crowds we were just with last week, the crowds who've come all the way out into the desert are starting to get restless. 
They've listened to John's sermon, as we did last week, inviting them into the grace of God's forgiveness. They've heard, as we did last week, John's challenge out of the power and not just the pardon of that forgiveness, the challenge to be fruit bearers for the kingdom of God rather than biting poisonous snakes. Many people, do you remember? Many people, Jews, tax collectors, soldiers of Rome alike, responded by submitting to John's baptism of repentance, a sign of their renewed daily reorientation to the Lord. Guided by John, they stepped down into the Jordan River. Think about it. The same waters crossed long ago by Joshua and their ancient ancestors in order to cross into the Promised Land. But time is passing, and as time passes, the people once again find themselves waiting, still waiting after such a long, long time. In that waiting, after centuries of, again, deafening divine silence, after more than just a few decades of being under the oppression of various foreign empires, the people in their waiting are starting to wonder. They're starting to get excited that maybe, just maybe, John is the one they've been waiting for. John is the Messiah the Savior promised by God. Now John, for his part, seemingly seemingly knowing the question that's on everyone's minds that's burning in their hearts, right? John redirects the people's expectations, pointing away from himself to someone still to come. But if you listen carefully, more than simply indicating he's not the guy, more than simply indicating he's not the Messiah, John emphasizes the greatness, the superiority of the one still to come by reinforcing his own unworthiness in comparison. In the rabbinic tradition, a master's disciple was to serve his teacher through the fulfillment of all sorts of mundane tasks. One exception to this was the removal of the rabbi's sandals, a task that was deemed too menial for the disciple and more befitting of a servant. It's against the backdrop of this cultural understanding that John insists he is not even worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. And it's worth pausing. Again, if you can hold on to this for several weeks, months, it's worth pausing to consider John's remark here. He's not even worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. It's worth pausing and remembering John's remark in light of that future moment when that same Messiah to whom John points in an upper room, counterintuitively lowers himself to wash the feet of his own disciples. John goes on to highlight the contrast between what he's doing and what the Messiah will do when he comes. John prepares the way, but the coming Messiah is the way. John's baptism with water serves as a sign, a symbol of the inner transformative reality, the work that only the Messiah can make possible. Water washes the surface, but it is fire that melts the center and purifies. John, in other words, enacts this visible image of getting clean, but it is the Messiah, John says, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the later fire of Pentecost, it's the Messiah who's the only one who can deliver the means for us to become clean, to be purified and made righteous, to be freed not only from our bondage to sin, the wages of sin, which is death, but also empowered for fruitful service and able to bring this life to others. And one final way that John distinguishes himself from the Messiah is clarifying that while he, John, can announce the certainty, the inevitability of God's judgment, as we heard last week, of righting the wrongs, it is the Messiah alone, John insists, who can objectively discriminate and execute final and ultimate justice for all as well as its consequences. Through this agricultural metaphor, John makes it clear it's the Messiah who judges this world, who is the Lord of the harvest, the harvest of salvation. The Messiah alone bears the winnowing fork to clear the threshing floor of all creation by separating the wheat, the wheat, the heavier, the beneficial, fruitful, life-giving grain to separate the wheat from the chaff the chaff, the lightweight husk or shell that offers nothing of sustenance. The chaff, for the chaff, John says, for the unrepentant, for the unchanged, 
For the fruitless, John cautions there is nothing but the unquenchable fire. The unquenchable fire. Ominous words. It's an image that's reminiscent of a word picture framed by the prophet Isaiah. The unquenchable fire Isaiah spoke was for those who insist on going their own way. Who insist on going their own way instead of abiding and following the Lord. But this image of the unquenchable fire, no doubt also brought to mind for those who were listening, Gehenna, the Valley of Hiddom, Jerusalem's perpetual garbage dump, where fires burned day and night and night and day. Now the question on everybody's mind whenever they get to this passage, is John talking about a literal physical place we call hell? Or others have said, is this unquenchable fire that John is talking about, is it the heat of all our desires that can never be satisfied apart from God that slowly and destructively burn the unrepentant from the inside out, that fire that always consumes us but never purifies us? Is that unquenchable fire any less of a literal hell for those who bear it? Both of these questions are interesting. And if you want to grab coffee with me, we can have a great conversation. But both of these questions miss the point of John's message. The point is the Messiah comes not to destroy. The Messiah comes not to burn the chaff, but to break the power of sin and death and save the wheat. John preaches not to present the demise of the unrepentant as inevitable. John preaches as a warning so that none, including the unrepentant, would perish. Still, you might have caught this, not everyone appreciates John's message. Not everyone appreciates John's message. You know, public talk of judgment, even when it's expressed as a caution, always offends somebody. And it doesn't help that John, as you heard, starts getting specific and naming names. And so Luke looks ahead and shares with us how John's preaching ends up landing him in prison. He's locked up in order to be shut down. But Herod Antipas... Herod Antipas' attempt to silence the messenger does not stop the message, the gospel, from breaking through. Because the way has already been paved for the word made flesh. Before John's arrest can occur, Luke lets us know that Jesus arrives on the scene. Did you catch this at all? This is crazy if you, if you think about how you picture Jesus' baptism. When we get to Luke, how he records it. The way Luke records it, Jesus comes out of the wilderness, comes out to the wilderness, stands in line like everybody else, and is baptized like everybody else. I don't know how you mentally picture it, but we always think like Jesus comes out and all of a sudden it's oh, and he walks in the water and everyone just backs away. The way Luke presents it, everyone's getting baptized and Jesus is like, okay, gets in line. Next, next, Jesus, next. Isn't that crazy? Jesus stands in line and gets baptized along with everyone else. And, and, and again, it's, if you compare this to the other gospel accounts, Luke's description of Jesus' baptism is very sparse. He doesn't tell us very much. It's almost like an aside. Yeah, Jesus was baptized. Instead, Luke focuses on what happens after Jesus' baptism. And it's interesting too, right, because this is not how I remember it or picture it, but the way Luke records it, it's not as Jesus was baptized, but as Jesus prayed after he was baptized, as Jesus prayed, as Jesus communed with the Father, that heaven opens so that the Holy Spirit can descend and a voice can be heard from above. And that picture, that moment, right? The opening of heaven, the piercing of the eternal into the fabric of the temporal, it serves as a divine spotlight, announcing not only the presence of the Lord, but focusing in on Jesus, it also signals he is the Messiah. And this revelation is further reinforced by the endowment of the Holy Spirit. I mean, sit in this for a moment. Jesus, who Luke told us earlier was conceived by the Spirit. Jesus, who Luke added later, grew up in the Spirit. Jesus, Luke now tells us, is filled with the Spirit. And such an anointing, a setting apart, such an empowerment for ministry, according to the prophet Isaiah, would be a mark of the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit, you caught this, right, appears not as a figment of anyone's imagination. The Holy Spirit appears in the visible manifestation of a dove. A dove. 
a dove, the former sign of God's presence and promise of salvation when the flood waters receded in the days of Noah. The Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove, and this will prove to be a fitting form for the Spirit to come into Christ, upon Christ, as Jesus will be revealed, as we all know, to be the Prince of Peace. Now Luke doesn't identify the voice of the one who speaks from heaven, but from what is spoken, it clearly is the voice of God, the Heavenly Father. And this voice addressed, notice, addressed directly to Jesus confirms what Jesus has been told by his parents probably since birth. What Jesus himself intuitively sensed when he was 12 years old. This voice declares, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. To fully appreciate what's said in this single sentence, We need to recognize Jesus having come up out of the waters of baptism, the waters of the Jordan. Jesus is now being drenched in the poetry of both the servant song of Isaiah chapter 42 and the messianic address of Psalm 2. There's even in this single sentence foreshadowing, there's foreshadowing in these words that echo that fateful day long ago when Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. Taken together, these three things, heaven opened, the endowment of the Spirit, the Father's word of affirmation, these three things serve to make one thing clear. Jesus is not only the long-expected Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus, is the Son of God. And now, this is underscored by Luke, by what we didn't read, what people skip over, that Jesus is not just the Messiah, but the Son of God, is underscored by Luke placing the genealogy of Jesus immediately after this moment. Isn't it a little strange? Isn't it surprising that Luke places it here, rather than at the start of his gospel about the life of Jesus? But it's intentional. Luke's placement of the genealogy here is intentional in its placement. And if you read through it, if you take the time, it's intentional in how different this genealogy in Luke, how different it is from the one we find in Matthew's gospel. Now, like Matthew's genealogy of Christ, you see a connection to the line of David that's established, demonstrating Jesus as the king of Israel. Similarly, as we read through this genealogy, like Matthew, the connection to Abraham links Jesus to the covenant promise given to Abraham and the children of Israel. A promise, you remember, not only that his descendants would be redeemed, but that through Israel, all the nations, all the people of the earth would be blessed. But Luke highlights two genealogical connections that Matthew does not make. You see, first, Luke takes the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And taking it all the way back to Adam, Luke is explicitly emphasizing, where he implied through Abraham, now he makes explicit, Jesus is the mediator of all humanity. Not just the Messiah of Israel, but the Savior of the world. The promised King of Israel is also the head of the human race. Jesus not only represents all humanity, but Jesus relates and acts for all humanity, not only as the son of Adam, but if you read to the very end of Luke's genealogy of Christ, notice the conclusion. Jesus not only represents all humanity, Jesus relates and acts for all humanity, not only as the son of Adam, but as the son of God. And just to be clear, Jesus does not become God's son upon his baptism. Jesus' identity is revealed to be the Son of God through his baptism. Now, I've just been taking you through the passage, and I, I, I love it. I'm fascinated by this. I think it's great, and maybe you do too, or maybe right now you're just falling asleep. I don't know. This is all great. But for those of you who are paying attention, and there's always, I know there's some of you out there, I can tell, I can sense it. All, so I've, there's a question I haven't answered yet that's the most obvious question that's just kind of sitting there. It's the elephant in the room in this passage. Why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? And if that question didn't occur to you, let me help you understand why. That's a question. John, as we remember, proclaims he's baptizing for repentance. John is baptizing as an external gesture of daily, regularly turning away from sin, turning away from rejecting and rebelling against God. 
If Jesus is the son of God, as Luke has made it clear, he is. If Jesus is uniquely without sin, as all Christians profess, then Jesus needs no repentance. So why is Jesus baptized? Now, if, you're, if you've studied this before, you go over to Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, when John asks this same question, right? When John asks this same question, as he hesitates to baptize Jesus, Jesus answers to fulfill all righteousness. That's helpful, right? I mean, I'm not, I kid a little bit, but Jesus' answer implies that he's complying with the Father's will. However, this still doesn't answer the question of why Jesus being baptized would be God's will. And in the midst of all the scholarly debate about this, and for those of you who are interested in this, you can get lost in all the different opinions and footnotes and what have you. In the midst of all the scholarly debate about this, what has been generally understood to be the answer to the question of why Jesus was baptized has to do with his identity. His identity. First, because Jesus is the Son of God, fully divine, perfect, and without sin, Jesus did not need to be baptized. An important clarification. Jesus did not need to be baptized. Instead, God in Christ chose to be baptized. Jesus chose to become one of us fully and completely. Jesus' baptism is so important because it shows us long before the cross, but the cross will be the exclamation point, Jesus' baptism shows us how far God will go to identify with us. And how far will God go as far as bearing all our sin, all of the brokenness of creation due to sin? As the Son of God, he was baptized to truly become one of us, to share in the fullness of our humanity, to experience all of our pain, all of our suffering, and even our death. But second, Jesus being not only the Son of God, but the Son of Man, fully human, Jesus chose to be baptized in order to show us, to model for us, what our true humanity is supposed to look like what it can be when we live lives of repentance, when we live lives of daily reorientation towards God, when we live lives of regularly abiding in the Father. But the good news, in the midst of this explanation of why, the good news is Jesus' baptism not only reveals his identity as the Son of God and the Son of Man, the why of Jesus' baptism reveals our true identity who we are. Being baptized into our humanity, becoming one with us, God in Christ chooses to identify with us, to stand in solidarity with us, to claim us as his own. We all have family, family by biology, but we all have friends who are like family to us. Friends who we go, even if the DNA doesn't line up, you're family to me. It's as if you were my brother and sister. Not as if you are my brother and sister. You are my, you've been more of a mom to me than my biological mom. You've been more of a grandparent than my, real, my you know, grandparents by birth. When we identify with someone, we claim them as our own, they are ours and we are theirs. Jesus, being baptized into our humanity, becoming one with us, chooses to identify with us, stand in solidarity with us, to claim us as his own. And therefore, what is said from heaven of Jesus is not only a declaration of who he is, but of our true identity. You're in the hospital. I'm sorry, family only. Are you family and you kind of haw awkward there because you're not really genetically, biologically family. I'm not really family. And the person who's in that bed says, that's my brother. That's my mom. And they let you in the room. Unless they take a DNA test, right? But the whole point is the person from the bed says, I identify with them. They belong to me and I belong to them. What's said of Jesus from heaven is not only a declaration of who he is, but of our true identity. Hear this. Sit in this, the simplicity and yet the, the depth and beauty of this. We are sons and daughters, children of God whom our Father is pleased to love. 
Hear that. As today in its own way heaven opens, the spirit is present and the voice of heaven speaks. The voice of our father saying, you are my son. You are my daughter. You are my children whom I am pleased to love. This is our true, one true lasting identity. This. But have we embraced it? I mean, intellectually, we've heard it before. Many many of us countless times, you heard it when you were baptized. But have we embraced it? Are we living out of it? So many of us. So many of us are driven by the question of our identity rather than living out of the answer of our identity in Christ. So many of us are struggling to find out where we belong, to make a name for ourselves. So many of us labor long and hard to be accepted, to prove our worth. So many of us desire greatly to be chosen, desire to be loved. Will somebody love me? Will somebody appreciate me? Will somebody value me? Some of us spend our whole lives chasing after that. Some of us, that's the, very, that's the, the definition of our career, and that's why so, for so many of us, retirement is a killer. Because who are we when we're not the job? Who are we when we haven't made the sale, when we haven't gotten the bonus, when we haven't gotten the title, when we're not going on the trip? So many of us have been chasing after that within our own families. The approval of our mom, our dad, our sister, our brother. So many of us who are married are choosing, chasing after that from either our spouse or our children, if we have children. That we belong. That we're accepted. That we're chosen. That we're loved, that we're appreciated, we're valued. And yet God comes down in Christ, both to show and tell us that we belong. That we belong to him. We belong not because of what we do or don't do. We belong not because of the name we try to make for ourselves. We belong because of the name that God gives to us, his children. We belong because of all that God has done for us through Jesus. God comes down in Christ to show and tell us that we are accepted, that we don't need to prove our worth. Some of you still need to hear this. I don't care what age you are. You don't need to prove your worth. Jesus comes down to show and tell us that we're accepted, that we don't need to prove our worth, that we are precious, already worth everything to our Father, as evidenced that we are worth everything to our Father. It's evidenced through Jesus accepting and embracing us at our very worst. Embracing us at our very worst so that he can show us, lead us into the best that we can become. God in Christ comes down to show and tell us that we are chosen. Goes all the way back to elementary school, doesn't it? All right, we're going to play a game. Let's split and make teams. Okay, your captains pick. Choose me. Choose me. Choose me. Teacher in the classroom. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Call on me. And what's devastating? When you're chosen last or when you're not chosen at all. God comes down in Christ to show and tell us that we are chosen. Our Father doesn't just settle for us. Some of you are here and have a relationship with God where you think that God settles for you. Well, I am supposed to be good and loving of everyone, so I guess I'll let you in. It really wouldn't be my preference, but I don't want to go against my perfection, so I guess I'll tolerate the fact that you get included too. God doesn't just settle for us. God doesn't just settle for you. Well, I've picked everybody else. I can't leave you. Fine. Yeah, come on. Come on, my team. Our Father doesn't just settle for us. In and through Christ, God chooses to love us without condition. Think about this. God chooses to love us without condition. He chooses to forgive us before we even say that we're sorry. God chooses to save us from death not because we've earned it or deserve it, but because God desires to share life abundant, life eternal with us. That's not just settling for us. That's choosing us. Again, I'm not saying anything that you haven't heard before. 
You've heard this many, many times. We profess to believe this is our identity. The question is, where I'm pressing, is are we practically, functionally living out of our identity in Christ? Because the invitation to know Jesus is the promise of being set free from our identity crisis. Knowing who we are in Christ sets us free from being enslaved by the pressure of constant self-discovery and reinvention. And we live in a world that basically tells you have to continue to reinvent yourself. You want to be valuable? You want to be significant? You want to be noticed? You want to be appreciated? Then you better reinvent yourself. You better come up with some new way to make yourself valuable, worthy. And we feel it, right? We feel it all the time, that sense of how can I make sure I update my resume? How can I make sure that I don't get left behind, that I don't get ignored, marginalized? But knowing in who, we, who we are in Christ sets us free from that, from constant self-discovery and reinvention. Knowing who we are in Christ sets us free from trying to figure out where we fit in, of earning the approval of others, of justifying our existence. Knowing who we are in Christ means no matter what job we have or don't have, no matter how much money we make or don't make, no matter what title we've been given or passed over for, no matter what others say or don't say about us, no matter what we've done or what's been done unto us, no matter how bad we may feel on a particular bad day, week, month, year, no matter what we suffer, even death itself, knowing who we are in Christ means our identity does not change. Hear that. Our identity does not change because the question of who we are already has been answered by the promises of the Lord. In Christ, we are sons and daughters, children of God whom our Father is pleased to love. You see, understanding and living out of our identity begins with authority. Before we can embrace the answer of who are we, we must grapple with the question of authority. Whose are we? To whom do we belong? Because if we insist that we are self-determining beings, and more and more that's what we're told, you can be whatever you want to be, you are whoever you define yourself to be, well, if we insist that we are self-determining beings, then our identity becomes fluid rather than foundational. And that may sound great, a fluid identity, but let me tell you, it's chaos. You foundationally want to know you belong. Foundationally, you want to know you are chosen. Foundationally, you want to know you are accepted. You do not want to have to have that be fluid, otherwise you will be chasing it for your entire life. And you will die having yet to grasp it. If we insist that we are self-determining beings, our identity becomes fluid rather than foundational. Instead of living out of the answer of who God declares us to be, we will instead ask and then decide for ourselves, who do I want to be today? Who do I want to be today? But right from the outset, Jesus models what it looks like to live out of the authority of the identity that God gives us. And we're going to begin to see this next week played out next week as Jesus heads into the wilderness, deeper into the wilderness, and faces the temptations of the devil. Jesus, as he encounters question after question about his identity, both in that specific moment with the devil, as well as you'll notice throughout the rest of his life on this earth, Jesus in his humanity, when he is questioned about his identity, Jesus will not ask, who do I think I am? Jesus will not ask, who do I feel like I am? No, as we watch Jesus, Jesus will continually adopt a prayerful posture of dependence. Relying on the empowerment of the spirit he has been given, Jesus' identity will not change. Again and again, Jesus will remain rooted in the authority of the declaration of heaven. He will remain rooted in the answer to the question, who does my father say that I am? You see, our one true identity in Christ is not a matter of feeling. Our one true identity in Christ is not even a matter of our choice. 
Our identity in Christ is a matter of declaration of our Father's authoritative pronouncement that we are His, that we together belong to Him, that we live for Him. And we need to keep following Jesus to discover not only what it looks like to live out of that authority, the authority of our God-given identity, but also we follow Jesus to learn how to live out of the power of our identity in Christ. Because, hold on to this, save it, in his humanity, it will be out of the power of his identity as God's beloved son that Jesus will find the strength to rebuke the devil, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, It is out of the authority, the power of his identity as God's beloved son that Jesus will receive the inspiration to reveal the kingdom of God as well as the courage to quiet the winds and the waves of opposing storms, both natural and man-made. It is out of the power of his identity as God's beloved son that Jesus will unreservedly embrace the way of the cross, willingly offering his life for the sake of saving everyone else's. And none of this, none of this would have been possible if Jesus had not lived out of the authority and power of his identity as God's beloved son. Richard Rohr, I don't know how many of you have heard of Richard Rohr before. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan priest and writer on Christian spirituality. And Richard Rohr observes that Jesus' ministry on earth is marked by his sonship. That Jesus engages all those he comes in contact with like a brother by first learning from his heavenly father how to be a son. I'm going to say that again because it's, it's heady, but it's, I think, very, very powerful. Jesus engages all those he comes in contact with like a brother by first learning from his heavenly father how to be a son. And this is powerful for me because I find For us, apart from Christ, we tend to be anxious to grow up. We tend to be anxious to throw off the mantle of dependency, of being sons and daughters as soon as possible, and to assert ourselves to exercise the authority, the power and control of fathers and mothers, even if we don't biologically have children. Rohr argues, from watching and learning from Jesus, the sequence of discipleship, the sequence of discipleship, the sequence of living into the fullness of our identity in Christ, the sequence of discipleship is learning first how to be sons and daughters of God in order to understand and appreciate how to be good brothers and sisters to each other. And this so lines up because what will Jesus tell us when everyone wants to know how to follow him and how to be a part of the kingdom of God? You must enter it as children. Become like a child. You must embrace your identity. You are sons and daughters in whom your father is well pleased. You want to jump ahead of that, you're going to miss it. And by the way, if you want to know anything about Christian history, part of the monastic tradition, why do we have you know, people who went away and, and, into monasteries and, and uh, convents? Notice what they called each other. They tried to live together as children of God, and they called each other brothers and sisters. Brother Chris, Sister Lisa, that's why in the, in the family of God, we refer to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because it's this recognition that we are children of God together, and we learn how to be sons and daughters of God. And out of that, we learn how to practice being good brothers and sisters to each other, and then take that out into the world. Roar says one final thing, which I think is powerful. Something you'll chew on, as I still do. He says that healthy spiritual mothers and fathers in the church, and we do have mothers and fathers in the church, we should all rise to that place. Rohr says healthy spiritual mothers and fathers in the church must come out of first living out of their identity as children of God and then maturing in our common brother and sisterhood in Christ. And as we look at the abuses in the church... As we look at the scandals, as we look at where people have been burned, what do we see? We see people who have no problem exercising the power and authority of claiming to be mothers and fathers, spiritually, who have not yet learned, who have not submitted to being sons and daughters. And therefore, because they don't embrace their identity as sons and daughters, they do not view those who are with them as brothers and sisters. Hence abuse, hence corruption, hence scandal. 
You see, this divine declaration, I don't know if you caught it, this divine declaration of our one true identity, it's both individual and collective. What I mean is, in Christ, we not only receive the answer to the question of who am I, but in Christ, we receive the answer to the question of who are we. We cannot claim to be living out of our identity as children of God if we do not honor and protect that identity in our brothers and sisters. Do you hear that, church? So whoever it is in your heart that you hate, whoever it is in your heart that you say doesn't deserve justice, doesn't deserve love, isn't chosen, isn't accepted, isn't valued, anyone that is, bears flesh and blood that you say not, not them, then you have just denied your identity in Christ then you are not living as a child of God. You are presuming to be a mother or father of which you do not have that right. We cannot claim to live out of our identity as children of God if we don't honor and protect that identity in our brothers and sisters. Think about it. You'll see it. Jesus treated everyone as God's beloved. He treated everyone as God's beloved and in so doing reflected their true identity to them. And Jesus, hear it, will both teach and model. He'll even command us to do the same. Because one of the greatest indicators, again, that we are claiming and living out of our true identity as beloved children of God, one of the biggest indicators that we're living out of that identity is our passion, our passion, and our willingness to help others recognize and embrace their belovedness, their sacred identity in Christ. All people are beloved children of God. But you know this, many have forgotten it. Some have never been told it. They've never been told that they belong, that they're chosen, that they're accepted. Many have never experienced some have even been forced to endure the exact opposite of the kind of belonging, the kind of chosenness, the kind of love that comes from knowing Christ. How will they know if we do not reflect it, if we do not share it? Now, being God's beloved, beloved children, no matter what, being God's beloved children, no matter what, does not mean we can live however we want. That's nonsensical if you think about it. Because once you know where you belong, once we know where we belong, once we know whose we are, once we know we've been chosen, we seek to grow and mature into that identity. To live as close as home as possible rather than to go off on our own. Go back to that grade school analogy. If there's a team and you get chosen to be on the team, how asinine is it is if you get chosen to be on that team if you start playing for the other team? You were chosen to be on this team. This is the team where you belong, and yet you're playing for the other team. When we know where we belong, when we know that we've been chosen, we don't try to leave home. We stay home. And this brings us back. This brings us back to the question of the day. Who are you? Who are we? From where does our identity come? Are you a self-made person? Seriously, ask yourself. Do you fancy yourself a self-made person? Are you whatever you want to be? Or do you sit here today and you're a people pleaser? You're whatever others want you to be. Who are you? Is the sum of who you are defined by your achievements and accolades? When people ask you who you are, do you start handing out your resume? Do you start bragging about your education, your job experience, your travels, your possessions, your children, what your children do, your spouse? Do you start listing off and saying, this is who I am, my achievements and my accolades? You'll know it because when those achievements and those accolades fall away or when your children or your spouse don't give you the sufficient praise or credit that you really want, don't make you look good, you're going to get upset about it. Why are you upset about the choices your children make or don't make? Because it reflects on you. That says something about me. Why are you struggling when you lose that job or when you retire? Because I was somebody. I was the senior vice president. I was large and in charge. Is the sum of who you are defined by your achievements and your accolades? Is the sum of who you are limited by the trauma and loss you've suffered along the way? I'm not making light of trauma. I'm not making light of loss. But trauma and loss can be healed. 
They're not supposed to define who we are, and yet some of us, that is the only way we can define ourselves. How I've been wronged, what I didn't get, what they did to me. And I'm not making light of the wrongness of any of that. What I am calling out is that's not supposed to define who you are. And for some of us, we're defined by the wrongs that have been done to us. We're defined by the things, the bad things that have happened to us. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Is it possible? This is hard. Is it possible your sense of self, who you are, is it possible that your sense of self is entirely wrapped up in one person? A spouse, a parent, a child, a sibling, wrapped up in one person, competing with them, seeking their approval, wanting to be closer to them? Is it impossible that your entire self is wrapped up in one role? I don't know who I am if I'm not this. A mom, a husband, a a boss, a son. Is it possible your whole sense of self is entirely wrapped up in one failure? I blew it. I did this. This happened to me. Is it possible your entire sense of self is wrapped up in one wound? Is it possible that your entire sense of self is wrapped up in something that cannot bear that weight? That your entire sense of self is wearing, bound up in something that's wearing down the potential of who you were truly meant to be? Does our identity come from where it belongs, from its true source, who we are in Christ? Because, beloved, last week's sermon was hard, I know. John talking about fruitless lives. But hear this, a fruitless life, a fruitless life, a life not bearing the fruit of the Spirit, a life without love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, a life without fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, is not because we haven't been good enough to earn it. A life without the fruit of the Spirit is because rather than live out of the inheritance of the grace we have been given that God gives to us freely, we keep trying to make a name for ourselves. We keep trying to make a name for ourselves instead of living out of the name that we have been given. Beloved. Beloved child of God. I want to make it clear. Living out of our identity in Christ, living out of our identity in Christ does not eliminate our difficulties. Living out of our identity in Christ does not fix all our problems. Living out of our identity in Christ doesn't take away our pain. Living out of our identity in Christ doesn't change our life circumstances. Living out of our identity in Christ, following Jesus, changes us. Changes us. Living out of our identity in Christ, following Jesus, changes the foundation of our being, what we live for, where we're not less than, but we're more than our mere biological existence. Living out of our identity in Christ, following Jesus, changes our outlook. It broadens and widens our sense of hope and vision for life as it might be, as it was meant to be. Part of why we settle in life is because we believe that's what life is all about, settling. But if God doesn't settle for us, if God says we belong, if God says he chooses us, if God says he accepts us, appreciates us, if God doesn't settle for us, that means that we're not supposed to settle in life. We don't have to settle. We have yet to discover all that God has in store for us in this world. Living out of our identity in Christ, you see, following Jesus, it changes the source of our wisdom and power. From where does your wisdom come from? From where does your power come from? Because your wisdom and your power is supposed to come from the assurance and confidence of God's presence working in and through every step of your life. Living out of our identity in Christ, following Jesus, means that no matter what trials we walk, and we will walk through trials, Jesus does, Jesus did, living out of our identity in Christ, following Jesus means no matter what trials we walk through, they will not ultimately define or limit who we are. The waters of chaos may rise up around us, but they will not drown us. They will not wash us away. We may walk through the fire, and we will, the fires of loss, the fires of our purification. We may walk through the fire, but we can take the heat. 
We will not be consumed by the flames. The sacredness, the certainty of our identity in Christ will become our light in the darkness, our stream in the desert, our peace that passes all understanding, our joy in the morning. We all, all of us, we all desire to be deeply known and accepted. We all, all of us, we want, we need to belong, to be chosen. We all long to be loved, to be loved without condition, and yet loved in a way that changes us for the better so that we can become the best we can be. And in the gospel, we receive the acceptance we desire, the belonging that we need, and the love that we long for. Our identity crisis is brought to an end as heaven comes down in Jesus Christ, fills us with the Spirit, and whispers to us our sacred name. You are my beloved son and daughter, in whom I am pleased to love. Life isn't about finding yourself. Life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about discovering who you already are who God created us to be, who we together can become in Christ. So let us then hear and receive our one true identity in Christ. Let us live and breathe out of all the authority and power, all the potential and promise that being a beloved child of God affords us. Let us reach out and proclaim to those who do not know, to those who have not heard, that they are accepted, that they are chosen, that they belong that they are loved by God in Christ too. Let us look together to our Father. And out of the identity that our Father has declared and empowered us to be, let us follow the Son, follow our brother Jesus in growing, in living, even suffering, all for the sake of this good, big, beautiful world that even now, just like us, God is remaking. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.